0: a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin. As the war rages in Ukraine, there have been what appears to be war crimes committed by Russian forces. This includes the targeting of schools, hospitals, and apartment buildings. But there are other gray areas as well. Somewhere between 10 to 20,000 foreign fighters may be seeking to join the conflict. Do they have a legal status? And pictures of dead bodies and captured prisoners of war on social media have raised questions of whether these too violate the laws of war. As Russian forces appear to be meeting fierce resistance, the conflict is becoming more deadly. To help us understand how the laws of war apply, I'm joined today by intrepid podcast Craig Forces, but also our good friend Blaise Cathcart, former Judge Advocate General of the Canadian Armed Forces, who is presently a Senior Fellow at West Point and an Adjunct Professor at the University of Ottawa Law School. Hi, guys.
1: Hey, hey Stephanie. Stuff. Nice to see you. Good to see you, Blaise. Good to be here, guys. Good to be here. Welcome back. So, uh,
0: so uh, I think we, we discussed before we started this podcast that it actually might just be a good idea to start off with a discussion of what are the laws of war, which are also sometimes called international humanitarian law.
2: Yeah, basically, from the perspective of law of armed conflict, as I tend to refer to it, but you're right, Stephanie, it's commonly known as international humanitarian law, not to be cu- confused, uh, although it often is with international human rights law. Those are, are separate uh, legal tools and mechanisms. International humanitarian law or law of armed conflict largely consists of treaties, and and I think for most uh, listeners, they'll be familiar with the main bodies, which are the Geneva Conventions of 1949. There are four conventions there, two additional protocols in 1977, the Hague Regulations, which are a bit older, uh, largely from 1907. But all of these form essentially the core of what we call the law of armed conflict. And they apply, along with other treaties, things like anti-personnel mine treaties and chemical weapons and cluster munitions, those types of things, they all apply when armed conflicts exist. Now, under international law, there are two types of armed conflict. One which we will focus on today with Ukraine is called an international armed conflict. The other is called a non-international armed conflict. Ironically, most of the laws of armed conflict have traditionally focused on international armed conflict, which are viewed as typical state-on-state conflicts. For us and and many practitioners and academics and observers, since the 9-11 attacks, the world has been almost exclusively focused on non-international armed conflicts, especially those involving non-state actors like ISIS and Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Now we have to don our international armed conflict hats again which many of us thought we would never see again, frankly, that there would be great power wars again, but we have. And so when we have an armed conflict, which uh, is basically any time states engage their armed forces against each other, that's supported by the International Committee of the Red Cross, renowned third-party interpreter of of the rules of war or the the laws of armed conflict, and some case law coming out of, for example, the International Criminal Tribunal for former Yugoslavia, the Tadic cases, and, and these have established what I think most people, practitioners, academics, others would consider a very low threshold as to when an armed conflict exists. That contact between militaries doesn't have to be great. For example, there was a, during the 80s, there was an American pilot shot down by the Syrians over the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon, became a, a prisoner of war. The Americans said there is an armed conflict between us and Syria for the purposes of giving that one pilot. The protections under the geneva conventions so it can be that minimal and obviously it can be much broader and, and more deadly as we are seeing in in the ukraine so what we see now is primarily the law of armed conflict from an international armed conflict perspective applying within ukraine and who are the parties there right now from my perspective the parties are obviously the ukrainians the russians and the belarusians the belarusians don't get a lot of press compared to russia But they're very much involved, obviously, on the side of the Russians. So those will remain participants. As we'll get to a bit later, there is debate about whether other nations, including Canada, are also considered
1: belligerents now in this armed conflict.
0: So, Craig, did you want to come in on this as well?
1: Yeah, so please, just a question. So just to be clear here, the prerequisites for the existence of an international armed conflict do not depend on a formal declaration of war. Am I right?
2: You're correct on that, Craig. In fact, really, since post World War One era and and other developments in the law, something called the kellogg brion Pact, for example, and of course the inception of the UN Charter in, in, in after uh, World War II, they have essentially, from a legal perspective, I'm not talking about everyday parlance, but from a legal perspective, outlawed the concept of war, and so declarations of war. While they still exist within various countries' own domestic laws for, to trigger a lot of authorities and financial authorities, from an international law of armed conflict perspective, war is illegal. What has grown up in its place, as, as I've been using that term, is this concept of an armed conflict. And the armed conflict is, as I mentioned earlier, based totally on facts. So the reason that has developed for your listeners' interest is, historically, you had many states who would throw their full armed forces at each other and would tell the world, oh, but we're not in an armed conflict. Conversely, you'd have militaries not fire a single shot at each other and say, we're in an armed conflict. Those were largely for political reasons. Now the law says we look objectively at what's going on. And if it looks like the level of violence and the numbers of, of troops, et cetera, are significant then that crosses what I called earlier a fairly low threshold that you have entered into an armed conflict, even if the state itself is, de- is in denial about that.
0: In this particular case, we have a Vladimir Putin who refuses to allow anyone to call this a war or invasion or anything like this. He, he insists that it's called a special military operation. That doesn't matter. That's
2: of no significance. Uh, in fact, if, if you want it to be very kind to Mr. Putin, which most people, including myself, don't want to be, you might say he's trying to be technical that it's not a war in the legal sense, but it's certainly an armed conflict to which the laws of armed conflict apply.
1: And and Blaze, just in further follow-on, so you made a distinction between what we're talking about here, the laws of armed conflict, and then the, the post-World War II charter regime governing the use of force, and so the UN charter. Am I right in asserting that... Legality for purposes of when force may be lawfully used by one state against another for charter purposes is totally irrelevant to the supplemental question as to whether the law of armed conflict applies, whether that conflict is legal from a UN charter perspective or not.
2: Yeah, correct, Craig. I, I would say the, the large body of practitioners and scholars myself would take that view. We call the law leading up to an armed conflict. We call it jus at bellum which is a fancy Latin term for saying the law of peace. And it sets out the criteria for states when they feel they have to use force under what specific circumstances they can do that against another state. The the three general leading categories for that are the concept of self-defense consent from another state. So if Ukraine would consent to another state coming in to assist it in fighting an armed conflict, that's how you get your authority. And, of course, uh, authority under the United Nations Security Council resolution under Chapter 7. And, and the, the key buzzword phrase there is when they say all means necessary to use that. So that, that regulates how states can decide if they want to use force under what legal basis. And we've heard some arguments about that from Mr. Putin about he's doing self-defense for Russians in those areas, assisting these independent states in the Donbass That sort of thing, which don't hold any real water factually. Having said that, there are some folks that would still say your authority, uh, your legality or illegality for using force against the state might somehow shape how you also fight the armed conflict. For example, in the, the armed conflict that NATO was involved in Libya a number of years ago, there were arguments saying that the NATO states went too far in destroying, you know, all of of Colonel Qaddafi's armed forces, essentially, whereas the NATO states would say, no, that's part of a regular military campaign under the laws of armed conflict, to destroy your enemy, even if they're not a direct threat today, they could be a threat tomorrow, for example, using tanks that are not close to a city, but they could get up there within two days. So there are some that that say there's some relevancy between the use ad bellum and then what we call use in bello, which is the law of armed conflict itself. I tend to say, and most of the, the existing cases and state practice tend to show that regardless of your legality to, to go to war, the law of armed conflict, apply. And this developed out of World War II, where in, in a particular case, Germany went into former Yugoslavia, caused a lot of devastation and war fighting. Yugoslavia said everything German soldiers did was illegal. The Nuremberg court, uh, court said no. As long as the German soldiers followed the laws that existed at that time, then their acts were legitimate, even if the act of aggression into Yugoslavia was uh, illegitimate.
1: So in other words, neither Russia nor Ukraine could argue that the rules applying to bello, the law of armed conflict, are are inapplicable because of their motivation in using force in the first place. In other words, it it applies regardless of the justness of the armed conflict in the first place.
2: Yes, and, and that's the development of the law of armed conflict in a very deliberate way To take that very concept that you've raised in your last comment, Craig, about justness, there's this concept out there of a just war. And and that basically was a development out of Christian philosophy and thinking that if you've got God on your side, then everything you do is okay. That has been significantly minimized and displaced, arguably, under modern warfare, where, again, your motivation for attacking another country, no matter how illegal it is, does not affect the rights that your your own troops would have fighting that under the laws of armed conflict.
1: Great. So, Blaze, let's segue then. Having had that an, initial conversation about the the substance of the law that we're talking about in this podcast, and talk about some specific issues. Now, you mentioned that in your view, currently the belligerents in this ongoing international armed conflict are Russia, Ukraine, and and Belarus. In, in those circumstances, there are, are also a number of other states who are at some level participating, namely by supplying uh, arms and supplies to Ukrainian forces, including Canada. Why is it that you would exclude those states as belligerents in in the circumstance? And what would the threshold be in your view for belligerency status, again, under the laws of armed conflict?
2: Yeah, that's a tremendous question, uh, Craig. And and of course, all of these armed conflicts are, are, are in terms of applying the law of armed conflict are critically dependent on the facts, and, and the facts as well as objectively, they can be known. So I'm going just like anybody else these days on what I see and hear from media coverage and government statements uh, about who's involved. So when I said those three belligerents, for I would say for sure, without any hesitation, we know the three belligerents, Ukraine, Russia, and Belarus. Next, the countries, particularly those including Canada, who are providing to Ukraine, and, and there's much debate about what, how far does that go before we consider those countries in Canada, what we call a belligerent or a co-belligerent in this case, because you've got Ukraine in there doing the main fighting. Again, it's really based on the way the law has developed. It's based on facts. There's also mixed in with this discussion. We've heard, I've heard a lot of, of discussion about things like neutrality. Again, many people uh, probably have never really heard the, the intricate details of the law of neutrality, which again has been developed from the Hague law that I mentioned earlier in in 1907, where there are specific rules developed for neutrals and on land and neutrals at sea. And there is a sea component to this potential crisis in in Ukraine as well, obviously with the Black Sea uh, and Crimea and Odessa and those ports available. But under that approach, we don't want to confuse the, the concepts of neutrality with belligerency, they, they are linked factually so that if you're a neutral state, traditional neutrality laws mean you cannot provide any support to a, a belligerent. So in this case, Canada, to use the example, if, they were, if Canada was to claim it's neutral, it could not supply the, the types of things, particularly the weaponry that they have supplied without violating its obligations under those laws of neutrality. And, and then the, the, the next threshold question is maybe Canada is claiming to be neutral and maybe it has violated neutrality, but that doesn't, from a legal standpoint, translate automatically into Canada being a belligerent or a co-belligerent in those circumstances. However, and you've touched upon it from your references to the, the UN Charter and how state practice and, and wars have been fought since the inception of the Charter. Some have argued that the concept of the law's neutrality really don't exist anymore in the modern world. And that's primarily because the UN and and in particular the UN Security Council is ultimately responsible for the maintenance of peace and security. So when a UN Security Council acts under chapter seven and issues a a resolution, usually naming one, one country an aggressor and others victims, all states have to support that resolution They can't claim neutrality, as some have tried to do in the Iraq coalition wars in the 90s. So if you take that perspective, then neutrality is almost eliminated from a truly realistic perspective. However, in a case like this, where you have one of the belligerents being Russia is also one of the permanent five members, the Security Council and can veto, as they have done, any potential resolution saying that they're the aggressor and and you know they're to take action against Russia, other states. Uh, then the question goes back to saying, is there something different out there? And, and some states, including the US, for example, have argued that there's a concept of qualified neutrality, where When you've got such a clear breach of the law that Russia has done and the Security Council cannot act because of that same Russian country invoking the veto, then you other states can assist the victim state, in this case, Ukraine, without violating or fully violating the law of neutrality. I'm more of a traditionalist. I'm not quite buying into that qualified neutrality piece. I think you're in this case, Canada and and Canada, to my knowledge, has not Openly stated that it's neutral in this circumstance. I think the facts would belie that anyway. But if they said they were neutral, then I would argue that they probably violated the neutrality by offering up, particularly the weapon systems, to to the Ukrainian Ukrainian forces.
1: But we're still not a belligerent because you're making a distinction between neutrality, uh, even assuming it persists in the modern uh, law, and belligerency status. So if one were to observe a set of facts, what sort of facts would lead to the conclusion that a third state is now a co-belligerent.
2: Yeah, and, and again, there's, uh, there, there's no sort of scientific black and white answer. It's highly dependent on the facts. And, and as in most armed conflicts, uh, most of the public, including myself and, and you guys, never know the full extent of the facts that, that are supporting it. But in this case, I would say the facts that we do know about sending weaponry. Canada's recently got on to, to sending M-72 uh, rocket launchers and, and grenades. There's other support that we're aware of under broad, circums- uh, under broad headings like surveillance and intelligence. All that to say that the, the more that a country like Canada is seen as contributing directly to Ukraine's ability to be a belligerent and fight against, you and against Russia then there's much more of a clear likelihood that Canada is a co-belligerent. So in, in my mind, as we sit here today on the 10th of, of, of March, based on the facts, I know Canada, if it's not crossed that line to be a co-belligerent already, and, and there may be other things that they're doing that I'm not aware of that would easily cross that line into being a co-belligerent, I would say they're teetering on, on that line right now through, the, through the, the public pronouncements about the types of assistance, particularly weaponry, that they sent there more clear examples obviously would have been if if we go and actually do fighting any state goes any state goes in there and, and actually helps the ukraine's on the ground in the air and then that makes you a co-belligerent then there are degrees after that so for example you may not do the fighting per se but you may be sending troops in there to work on on gathering intelligence and information on on creating targets for the ukraine military to target the russian forces in my opinion that would cross the line as well as being a, a belligerent in those circumstances. So then, then, then there's those degree, the, gray, the, the grayness really starts or the fog grayness starts to roll in when you're, you might be sending surveillance assets or providing, let's say a satellite coverage that, that the Ukrainians can use then to target Russians. Some may argue that's not enough to cross that line. Others. And I tend to put myself in the latter category where I think if you are helping them actively help a Ukraine target Russian uh, forces, then you are a belligerent.
1: So let me, but let me, without belaboring this point, because we've talked about two different legal regimes. We've talked about the use, the use at bellum, the, the circumstances in which force could be used by one state against the territory or political integrity of another state. And then the use in bellow, the law that applies during the armed conflict. So yeah. let's say for the sake of argument, that Canada were a belligerent what would the consequences of that be legally? Presumably that means in, in terms of status distinction that were a Canadian a soldier or someone who was participating in the armed conflict found in the Ukraine itself, the Russians would then A, be able to target that person as a belligerent yeah. and B, if they were captured, they might have prisoner of war status. And that's something we can come back to. But, that, but the status of belligerency in uh, law of armed conflict would not itself open the door to Russia, claiming that it was subject to an armed attack, justifying self-defense against Canada by attacking Canada, say.
2: No, you're quite right on that. In this case, assuming the same, the same set of facts that, that the armed conflict is already underway between the Russian, Belarusian, and the Ukraine forces, then other states who join, you're basically then, and, and that could equally apply to the Russian side, the Russians may get more allies that join the con just and again if you look at that traditional again state-on-state view the you have the allies and and then the allies have the enemy forces those enemy forces and allied forces are all belligerent under the law of armed conflict when when they're fighting and as we will get to eventually there's obviously some different rules that do and must apply to uh, civilians who are taking part in hostilities but from the strict perspective of military versus military Yes, if Canada was a belligerent in that and there were Canadian soldiers on the ground or uh, Canadian aircraft flying or Canadian uh, ships in the Black Sea, they could all be targeted lawfully by Russian by Russian forces, irrespective of the fact, as we went back to at the very start here, that the aggression itself by Russia Is illegal
1: but does matter in the sense that russian forces are illegally invading uh ukraine for them to turn around and say that a canadian participation in helping ukraine defend itself against russian aggression constitutes an armed attack against russia itself justifying a self-defense by russia against canada would be a perversity right you so from a you bellum perspective
2: exactly and but it's highly likely if that were to occur that, that Mr. Putin would make that claim. Sure. He, he, he's yep. saying, in fact, his claim today is largely based on that, saying that the buildup of NATO forces in the, the, the Baltic states, and now talk of Ukraine wanting to be part of NATO, that all leads him to believe that there's, there's an imminent threat to, to Russia. And that's part of his justification, which is basically not founded on the facts, to say we're in a self-defense mode. Right. In this case, on the other side, The other countries coming in would be much more validly stating that they're in a collective self-defense mode. That is, they're there to collectively defend Ukraine.
1: So, Blaise, we've already talked a little bit about the status distinctions that arise when you do have an armed conflict uh, and you have belligerence involved in an armed conflict. So maybe we could spend a few minutes on that because the issues have arisen. So uh, 101 for IHL, uh, international humanitarian law or law of armed conflict is a uh, principle of distinction that you're supposed to distinguish between combatants and non-combatants. You're not supposed to target non-combatants. And so the colloquial phrase would be civilians, but of course it's broader than merely civilians. So you're not supposed to target a non-combatants but you can target combatants. So in order for the principle of distinction to work, you have to know who's a combatant and who's not a combatant. So one of the issues that's come up, it's one thing to talk about the Ukrainian and Russian militaries per se, but there's been conversation not least about citizens, Ukrainian citizens taking up arms, first example. Second example would be foreign citizens joining some sort of proto-foreign legion of some sort. And in relation to the status as combatants or non-combatants, what do we make of those two categories of persons?
2: Yeah, so again, those categories that, that you've mentioned, combatants, and technically they are combatants and civilians. Non-combatants very technically are members of the military who are not considered fighters, such as medical personnel and chaplains, for example. But in a in broader everyday a person's parlance, we tend to say combatants and non-combatants. But the, technically, the laws of armed conflict really distinguish between combatants and civilians. Um, and combatants having the right under international law to take part in the armed conflict. And that's very important, both internationally and domestically, because if your authorization is based on how states authorize the creation of their armed forces, and domestic law says, this is our armed force, this is how it's organized and structured, and we give those armed forces the authority on our behalf to go abroad and fight armed conflicts, Under international law, then, that to be a belligerent or a privilege of belligerency is very important, because what it means in in the most extreme circumstances, someone who kills someone who's lawfully entitled to kill them, they can't be tried in the victors or losers domestic courts for murder, for example. And, And conversely, on the civilian side, the whole concept there is they're not privileged belligerents, they're not authorized to take part in hostilities, in return for that, they get very significant protections under the law of armed conflict particularly geneva convention number four from 1949 it outlines a whole host of really really impressive protections for civilians now those protections are only as good as the person's the fighters who comply with the law to protect the civilians so under law of armed conflict there are basically geneva convention hague regulations that i talked about earlier were the initial documents and then built upon by geneva conventions and in particular Geneva Convention Number 3, which deals with prisoners of war. And it under Article 4 of that convention, the Geneva Convention 3, it, it sets out sort of the criteria of who gets combatant status, which then would be entitled to have POW, prisoner of war status, upon capture. Those, those criteria, and one is if you're a member of the armed forces, militias and volunteer corps that are part of the armed forces of a state. And again, it doesn't give much more detail. That leaves it to each individual state to describe how their armed forces are organized. And then there's another category that says militias and volunteer force resistance fighters who are not part of the armed forces of the state, but they belong to the state. It's a bit of a, a bit of a legal terminology there. They also will ha- would have the valid sanction to be a combatant to kill lawfully, and if captured, to be prisoners of war. Another category are civilians who take a direct part in hostilities. We call it DPH, direct part in hostilities. And basically, because civilians are not to take part in hostilities in order to maintain their significant protections against harm, they are to to refrain from taking a part in hostilities. If they do, then they're liable to lose their protections and be the subject of attack or capture. Now, we can spend many more podcasts and I'd love to with you explaining, you know, the modern developments of this concept of direct participation in hostilities, because the rules themselves don't give a lot of detail to that. There have been other efforts. The International Committee, the Red Cross, has tried to put out guidance on what it means to take a direct part in hostilities. Some states agree with it. A lot of major states like Canada don't fully agree with it. But essentially, that came about because of the the growing prevalence since 9-11 of what I referred to earlier as non-international armed conflicts, where you had these organized armed groups who were not state actors, the Taliban, ISIS, Al-Qaeda. And so the law had to develop very quickly, at least in practice, to say, how are we going to treat these individuals? And there's another category that has popped up in the news once, and that is a category of mercenaries. And and those are a special, distinguished category of individuals the rules for being a mercenary are, are laid out under additional protocol one to the Geneva Conventions of 1977. And it's a very technical, there are six criteria, I think, and maybe a bit more about who becomes a mercenary. It's a term that's, again, in, in everyday parlance is used to describe any foreign fighter or any foreigner coming into an armed conflict. But a mercenary is not that in all circumstances. It, it, it's a very specific category of people. A mercenary under the law of armed conflict, if you fall into that category, is not entitled to combatant status or prisoner of war status upon capture. So when we go through the criteria again, to be a lawful combat, and this includes the members of the military, although there's some debate about that, because some argue just when a state says you're a member of an armed force, that's enough to give you PW status if you're captured. I tend to think, no, you have to comply with the same Criteria that militias and volunteer corps have to do, and that is you have to be commanded by someone who is responsible for your subordinates. You have to wear a distinctive emblem of some sort. It doesn't have to be a full uniform, but it has to be something. And we see that with a lot of Ukrainian forces wearing uh, yellow. Yeah, I was going to say it's the yellow badge, right? Yeah. 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 I've
0: also seen Uh, some red ones, but I think those actually might be Russian.
2: Yeah, I I don't know them all yet. That's why I said the facts (laughs) on the ground. A third criteria is you have to carry your arms openly when you're fighting. And a fourth one, which is very crucial, and this is one that a lot of groups don't comply with, is you have to comply with the law of armed conflict when you're conducting your military operations. So if you fall into those, the, the categories that follow those criteria, you'll achieve lawful combatancy, which again gives you combatant immunity not to be charged with murder, for example. And that, but it also makes you liable to be killed by the other lawful combatants as well. Where we get into a lot of gray area and debate now is really in these categories of civilians who are already in Ukraine taking up arms and others, foreign fighters that, that we've talked about who are coming in. I, I did miss one category that uh, that does apply to civilians. It's the only category where the civilians don't need the approval of the state to fight. And that's a category called levée en masse. Uh, and this was a concept again developed in the, the 1949 Geneva Conventions under Geneva Convention 3, where if one state is uh, invading a country, uh, citizens can spontaneously take up arms to resist that. But the arms, you have to carry your arms openly again and The spontaneity uh, can't last for weeks or months or years. The whole concept is citizens can rise up without state approval to fight the enemy in order to give the state time to organize its armed forces and to create officially sanctioned volunteer corps or militias of that nature. If you're a person and you spontaneously take up arms and you're by the Russian forces in this case, you're entitled to be a lawful combatant and you're entitled to prisoner of war
1: status. So just to then summarize the categories that have been in the media often, because there's a lot of conflation of terms here. So yeah, uh, if we talk about Ukrainian civilians who have now taken up arms, the question as to whether they're lawful combatants or not would, would hinge on to what degree are they integrated into existing armed forces? To what degree in doing so uh, do they comply with the criteria you've listed for lawful combatancy status? Yeah. Or alternatively, uh, are they legitimately a levy en masse, in which case they would also be entitled to PW status? And then in relation to the foreigners, the issue would be to what degree are they integrated uh, into the existing Ukrainian forces, again, complying with those criteria you've listed. The mere fact that they're foreigners shouldn't matter, it seems, for their lawful combatancy status. And in relation to, say, the Wagner Group, which has been mentioned as a mercenary in the Russian side, l- labeling them as a private military company or a mercenary seems to me uh, less relevant based on what you've said than... The degree to which the Wagner Group itself becomes part and parcel of the Russian military and, and thus the lawful combatancy status of the Russian military extends to the Wagner Group. Am I, am I wrong about any of those things?
2: No, you've hit the nail on the head with, with that summary, Craig, that again, it's all about international armed conflict in particular. It's all about getting state approval to do the fighting on the state's behalf. So like you said, Ukrainian citizens who rise up and form groups, Some of those groups, and this is factually some of the things we just don't know know enough about yet. We've heard President Zelensky encourage citizens and foreign fighters to come and and do things. Objectively, that seems to be a state approval of it. So that would probably be enough. And if there's further evidence, uh, any kind of, I don't know, documentation or verbal swearing in of forces, that sort of thing, that would all go to further strengthen the argument that all such civilians and foreign fighters are indeed lawful combatants because of the state approval uh, of that. And again, the approval can come from being formally part of the armed forces. And and that's happened historically in cases uh, where Canadians go and join the militaries of other states. In this case, they can specifically sign up to join the military of the Ukraine. That will get you covered automatically automatically. But if you don't join it, then it's like I said earlier, it's the concept of belonging to the party. In this case, if you belong to Ukraine, and this is where you do need evidence that the groups are following Ukrainian President Zelensky and the chain of command's directions on how to fight the war, and that in in reciprocating that ability to fight. Ukraine says, yes, they are authorized to fight on our behalf. As the longer the war goes, and we've seen this based on other conflicts in the modern era, this is where it gets more complicated, where maybe some of the resistance groups don't formally associate themselves and are not considered belonging to the, the government or the party of Ukraine. And in that case... The only category left for them is is the category of taking a direct part in hostilities. And if it's a big enough group, like we've seen with non-state actors like ISIS and Taliban Al-Qaeda, then they, they can be considered an organized armed group of unprivileged belligerents or unlawful combatants who, even though they are taking part, don't have the legal authority to do, and they're not considered civilians in the strictest sense, and they're not considered combatants, lawful combatants in the strictest sense. And again, there's still much current debate about that issue. And we could spend more podcasts doing that one too. But that's concern here is the more the fighting continues, if there are large groups of civilians and foreign fighters coming into Ukraine, who don't have the approval or the authority of the government, or in many ways, outright say, we're not part of the government, we're just fighting for the freedom of individual people, to put it that way, then they become groups outside of lawful combatants and outside of protected civilians, and that they're really at serious jeopardy. They still have a lot of protections, fundamental protections of life, liberty, and security of the person, so to speak, but they don't get the same elevated protections that you would as a peace-abiding citizen or a lawful combatant.
1: So the one gray area there I blaze would be Uh, Assuming you don't have the endorsement of the government, would you qualify as a levy en masse? Because you've taken up arms in a manner that complies with the criteria there, which are are more relaxed. The criteria for levy en masse are more relaxed than the criteria for being part of an armed force, as I understand it. So correct.
2: But again, there, the fact that there are still conditions, the the, the chief one being spontaneity. If you're fighting a, a levy en masse, the longer the war goes, I don't think it's going to qualify as a levy en masse.
1: Okay. And of course, it doesn't apply once there's occupation once the foreign, the foreign army occupies the territory. So, Blaze, I'm conscious of the time here, but yep. there's another set of issues that I think we really need to address. So we've talked about combatancy status. And just to summarize there, uh, by lawful belligerent, we mean a person who is entitled under law, international law, to engage in the use of, of kinetic force, of, of military force, cannot be prosecuted for that participation in the conflict except if they commit egregious violations of international humanitarian law that would constitute war crimes, which we've not talked about, but we will in a second. As opposed to unprivileged belligerents or unlawful combatants, which would be, for example, civilians who participate directly in armed conflict. Those people do not enjoy immunity and can be prosecuted under the domestic law for their wrongdoing. And so they're not entitled to PW status. All of those people, if they take up arms, however, are targetable by the enemy. And so, correct. correct. So really what we're talking about is what happens to you if you're captured when we're yeah. making this distinction between combatant and non-combatant. M- maybe then just on this issue, again, the principal distinction in civilians and, and combatants, there's been a lot of in the media about Russian forces using munitions. So we're talking missiles and artillery against civilian infrastructure, hospitals, apartment blocks, nuclear reactors, etc. Can you help us understand the extent to which that is lawful and compliant with the laws of armed conflict? Appreciating again that the facts matter, but in what circumstance would that be unlawful? And maybe this is uh, an invitation to talk a little bit also about what constitutes a war crime.
2: Yeah, there's obviously been many reports and it's very common in armed conflicts for parties on both sides to want to quickly start characterizing each other's actions as illegal crimes against humanity, genocide, war crimes, things of that nature. Again, just on on the facts that we know, some of the targets that we've seen, particularly the, the Russian forces targeting hospitals and civilian structures and radio towers, TV towers, that sort of thing, objectively on the surface... Those appear to be in contravention of the laws of armed conflict and constitute either a grave breach or or a a more simple war crime in in, in the circumstances. Having said that, there, there are lots of caveats and exceptions built into the law of armed conflict, which again are fact dependent. Much like the categorization of combatants and civilians, under the law of armed conflict, your targets your military objectives, as they're referred to under the law of armed conflict, are indeed that valid military objectives, or it's a civilian target. Much like civilian persons, civilian objects and property are protected. They're not supposed to be targeted specifically by anybody in the armed conflict. However, the exceptions to that are the civilian object, and that that can be buildings or even swaths of land, for example, or, or parts of your territorial sea, if they're used for military purposes, then they lose their protection for that. And like the person who loses their protection, that can be a short period of time or it can be for the duration of the armed conflict, depending on the facts of that. So in in these circumstances where we see hospitals and civilian objects being targeted with missiles and artillery fire, objectively, we say Russians are breaching the law. But without knowing all the facts, there, there may be circumstances in which Ukrainian forces are present in those particular objects, in which case, the, from a starting position, the Russian forces can lawfully claim that they can attack those otherwise civilian objects because they're now being used for military purposes. Having said that, there's a host of other rules and regulations under law of armed conflict in how you do go about attacking and targeting. You have to take a number of precautions, to, to ensure that civilians aren't killed, you have to discriminate in your choice of weapons, ones that just will kill anybody in sight, or ones that are more precise, that will target those military objectives that we talked about. So in, again, in this case, personally, I would need more facts to be able to say conclusively whether the Russians have committed war crimes. I would say as a starting position, it certainly looks like they have done so, but if the Ukrainians have been using those military objects, including hospitals uh, for military purposes, then the Russians can certainly lawfully claim that they're no longer civilian objects and that they're in- entitled to attack them, subject to all the other rules about how you conduct an attack, with the rule being you got to minimize civilian casualties as much as possible. Because again, and I've said this in a number of conflicts, particularly the ones Canada has fought in, Afghanistan and uh, Iraq and those theaters of operations where there's a perception largely through the media and government statements and non-government organization statements that you can't kill a civilian period. That's incorrect under the law of armed conflict. The law does allow you to target not civilians specifically, but military objectives where the civilians are, to use the famous phrase out there these days, collateral damage. But again, you have to do an assessment before you attack is how much damage are you going to do, collateral damage, both to killing civilians or injuring them and the property versus the military advantage to be gained by attacking the military objective there. So uh, I just wanted to highlight that it's absolutely banned to specifically attack civilians. So if the Russians are just lobbying munitions at civilians because they want to terrorize them and kill them, that's a war crime. But if it's tied into Russian intelligence saying Ukrainian Uh, troops are using these facilities, then it may well be a lawful attack.
1: One other issue about the weapons use is the use of cluster munitions. So that also has come up in the media. Now, you mentioned at the outset, the laws of armed conflict can include regulations on certain sorts of munitions. Is that particular to those states who have agreed to those constraints? So I'm thinking here of cluster munitions. So would it apply in this theater?
2: No, it would not, because neither Ukraine nor Russia are parties to the uh, Cluster Munitions Treaty, which imposes a a ban on the use of such munitions. If you're not party to those things, then you're not bound by them. Some might try to argue that those provisions reflect what we call customary international law, meaning that it's not written down anywhere, but states act as if it is binding upon them. So if all states say cluster munitions are unlawful all the time, then you could apply it to Ukraine and uh, Russia. But I don't think the law has developed to that stage yet. So if you're not a party to the actual treaty, then you're not going to be bound by that. Cluster munitions in this context can be lawfully used by both sides. But again, they have to be within those other rules I mentioned about not doing indiscriminate attacks or using indiscriminate weapons. And cluster munitions, even though they appear that way, they, I, that way being indiscriminate, they're not necessarily... We've had NATO troops use them in Kosovo and other places. They're largely used when you have a large concentration of troops and or, or military vehicles, armoured vehicles in particular, out in the open and you want to bond them effectively with a widespread weapon, that's your cluster munition. That's why states like the U.S. still the use of of cluster munition. So in this particular case, just the mere use per se of a cluster munition is not illegal by Russia or Ukraine, but how they've used it, and I don't have enough facts to be able to say that, but if they've used it uh, in an indiscriminate way, then that would be a violation of the law of armed conflict.
1: So two stark differences. You use your cluster munition against a column of of infantry in a remote field somewhere because you're not governed by the convention that would outlaw all use of cluster munitions you're subject to the regular rules of the law of armed conflict and that would be appropriate targeting of combatants correct counterpose that with a circumstance where you use your cluster munitions in a schoolyard where there's no military objective because the area is not being used for any military purpose whatsoever regardless of whether cluster munitions are banned for you under the convention that would violate the principle of distinction, because you're now using it in a manner that effectively targets civilians, regardless of the munition being used, you're, you're acting unlawfully. Am I right?
2: You're right on that. And there's just one other point to add, I have to confirm, but I believe Russia and Ukraine may be parties to another convention called the Explosive Remnants of War Convention. And that's designed to deal with the after effects of war and attacks, so that if there's a lot of munitions fired in, in armed conflict, so Artillery shells and grenades and mines and munitions are left unexploded. Not all of them work the way they're supposed to. States will have an obligation to go in and clean those up and defuse them. If when you're using a cluster munition that the far majority of your munitions will never explode upon impact on the ground, then that can be used as evidence that that you're thinking of it as an indiscriminate weapon because it's highly likely that another civilian, particularly children, will come along and think of it as a toy and play with it. So there's, there again, the law of armed conflict, I think has a, a fairly comprehensive way of dealing with cluster munitions.
0: I just have one last question because this keeps coming up. Based on what we've heard about, okay, protection of civilians, targeting all this kind of stuff. This I think this kind of wraps that together. We have seen attacks on humanitarian convoys, like basically convoys bringing people out. I think that's indisputably a, a war crime and the ICRC has in fact said as much. I guess the other question I have though relates to, humanitarian convoys that only go to Russia. So Russia is basically saying, yes, we will allow for people to escape, to get out of Mariupol and and the other cities that are under attack, but we're only going to let them escape either to Russia or Belarus. Is that permitted?
2: Uh, The short answer is yes. Again, coming back to your your point about this concept of humanitarian corridors or humanitarian convoys, the law of armed conflict does account for them. It it says parties shall allow these to happen. The problem is with the wording is that it's based on agreement from both parties of how to execute that. So what that means is you have to set it up with the agreement of both parties as to how the corridors work and who's allowed it to come in and come out. So in the case of attacks on, on convoys, for example, it may not, again, necessarily be a violation of the law of armed conflict. If the parties agree that there, there's no military use whatsoever of the convoys, that it truly is humanitarian in every aspect, the stuff being delivered, the, the drivers of vehicles, all that kind of, then yes, an attack on that convoy would be unlawful and a violation of war crime. But if there's evidence that one side or the other is, is using the cover of the convoy to advance a military advantage by bringing weapons in or gathering intelligence, then those convoys can be attacked under the same rules that we've just discussed about proportionality and collateral damage, et cetera, et cetera. Just to oh, yeah. your second part is where they go is to be agreed upon as well. Obviously there's suspicion that the Russians are only opening it up to people to go into Russia. Again, If you've got good professional non-government organizations conducting the convoys and the ICRC monitoring, they can monitor the whole convoy from Ukraine into Russia. And then those people, civilians, have to be dealt with under the laws of armed conflict as civilians. They can't be interned and all shot executed summarily thing. Obviously, The risk is greater if they're all going to Russia, but it's not unlawful as long as Russia abides by the rules to treat the people in accordance with the protections that they're entitled to.
0: Okay. So they don't, there's no obligation to allow people to go to Moldova, for example.
2: No. Again, it's all based on uh, the two sides are fighting a war in theory. And so that's, that becomes the priority and they have these obligations to, to protect civilians. So In some cases, they might say it's not even safe to bring in a convoy, even though there's a a huge amount of humanitarian suffering going on. But, and this is an aspect of the law of armed conflict that has obviously really frustrated the International Committee of the Red Cross, Médecins Sans Frontières, and and other really courageous groups to go in and do humanitarian work is there's still this possibility of that one side or the other cannot agree. And, And that's why some of these organizations are pressing for a stricter interpretation of humanitarian assistance to say no parties to the conflict can interfere with, in any way, with the convoys. I think that's the best way to go, but the law as it stands today, military commanders can decide if it's safe or not, and if they think it's it's going to offer a military advantage to the other side by allowing the convoys, then they may not agree to it.
1: Blaze, last two minutes. Yep. Enforcement and accountability. So... We've thrown a lot of law at our listeners. The question, obviously, is: so what happens in terms of enforcing all this law?
2: That, and that's always the challenge with international law, Craig, as we all know, who work in it frequently, is to to the average Canadian or other person on the street. It look we spend a lot of brain power to come up with all these great laws, but at the end of the day, it looks like there's impunity. I.e., nobody actually gets charged or serves any real time. I would say it started to change with the Nuremberg and and other types of trials after World War II and certainly developed with the international criminal tribunals in former Yugoslavia, Rwanda, the creation of the International Criminal Court, for example. All of these, I think, are showing now much more desire to do that enforcement and hold people accountable piece. So... Basically, there's two ways, two major ways to hold them accountable. International mechanisms. the chief one of which, in terms of, I think, listeners' understanding would be the International Criminal Court. And we've heard already that the, the prosecutor for that court has agreed to look into potential violations of that. That's a, a little bit thorny legally, because neither Ukraine nor Russia are parties to the Rome Statute. That's the statute that created the International Criminal Court. So In theory, just on that basis alone, you can argue there's no jurisdiction for the court or the prosecutor to investigate, charge or prosecute down the road. But after Russia invaded Crimea in 2014, Ukraine and the Ukrainian government under the Rome Statute, there's provisions where states that are not party to the Rome Statute can consent to investigations occurring. And they have consented to investigations occurring. And that is the legal authority that the the prosecutor of the ICC is now using to launch that. So we'll see what comes out of that. But even if there's evidence of war crimes under the Rome Statute, the International Criminal Court tends to only deal with widespread serious violations or war crimes in this case. So there may be dozens, if not hundreds of minor breaches of the law of armed conflict that they're just not going to be interested in. They're, they will focus on the bigger war crimes, like targeting, intentionally targeting civilians, mistreating and torturing uh, POWs or detainees, that sort of thing. But the broader ones may, may not be investigated. Another international route, at least for investigating and holding accountable, and it's been fairly common over the last number of armed conflicts, is for the United Nations Human Rights Council to create what they call a Commission of Inquiry. They've done that in, in Syria and in Libya and in Yemen to go in and gather facts. And then those facts can be turned over you know, to the Security Council, maybe to the ICC, but they can also be turned over to domestic courts if there's prosecutions that way. The third major way to investigate, possibly try, would be the creation of a special, what we call ad hoc, one-time-only type of tribunal, which we saw, saw in the Yugoslav, former Yugoslavia, Rwanda. Sierra Leone, Cambodia, with some slightly different nuances in how they were structured. But those could be set up to truly deal with those lesser war crimes and and violations that perhaps the International Criminal Court can't deal with or doesn't want to deal with. So that's another tool that that can be used to to try to hold the violators accountable. And then there's a possibility of, of domestic courts. A lot of domestic courts exercise what we call universal jurisdiction over things like war crimes and genocide, crimes against humanity. So there there may be a possibility down the road that even Russia and Ukraine themselves in their own courts could try people, charge and try people. Or other countries, if, for example, we saw in Canada when we've had Nazis or Nazi collaborators or uh, war criminals from Rwanda, for example, come in, Canada took the initiative to try them in Canada rather than sending them to an international body. So there, there are mechanisms, but at the end of the day, they're going to be completely dependent on the ability of, of people to get in into Ukraine or wherever the armed conflict is, it may spread to, to gather the facts. Because without that evidence and facts, there's no practical way to hold people accountable.
0: This has been a really comprehensive overview of the laws uh, that apply to this conflict. Although I still feel like maybe we're just scratching the surface. There's so many details we can probably dig down on. All of this to say that there's just a lot of bad that's happening on the ground. And I'm quite sure that we will be hopefully having you on to talk us through some of the issues uh, sometime soon. So thanks so much for joining us, Blaze. Thanks for rejoining me again, Craig, to, to try and look at some of the issues with regards to the Ukraine-Russia war. So I I look forward to talking to you soon, but unfortunately, it's on a fairly tragic topic.
1: Thanks, Stephanie. Thanks, Steph.